As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport on The Athletic. Uh, Matt Slater not with us this week. He's picked a, a great week to go on holiday as one of the biggest uh, sports stories of the year unfolded. I'm joined by The Athletic's Oliver Kay uh, today, who's been writing about the state of financial fair play in the wake of Lionel Messi's transfer to PSG and also uh, the spending of Manchester City and Chelsea. We'll go to Spain a little bit later on on the pod to talk to finance expert Luis Garcia Alvarez for insight on the deal that La Liga have struck with CBC Capital Partners. Uh, the idea there being that they'll sell a 10% stake for £2.7 billion and it'll be a 50-year deal. Real Madrid and Barcelona threatening to take legal action against La Liga on that deal. So an awful lot to get through on the business of sport. We'll get into your piece, Ollie, on financial fair play uh, very shortly and how it all fits together. Uh, as someone who's covered an awful lot of transfers, what, what are your thoughts on what we've seen over the last week? Weird, really. I mean, it, it was it was weird getting to the end of the end of June, and obviously Messi was at the end of his contract, and he was playing at the Copa America, and it suddenly struck me he was actually playing for Argentina as a free agent. He he was no longer a Barcelona player. You know, we've seen that happen with. For example, Gary Breen at, uh, with Ireland at the 2002 World Cup. Slightly different when it's Lionel Messi playing as a as a free agent. And you thought, well, you say that, you say that, <laughs> but you know, but you, but you thought, well, surely, you know, th- there seems to be a complete lack of urgency at Barcelona. And then I was reading, you know, th- th- they were saying, look, everything's fine, a deal's agreed, and 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 there's no problem. And then I was reading Dermot Corrigan's pieces on the Athletic, explaining the delay and explaining that because of these complex financial regulations in La, in La Liga and because of Barcelona's sort of massive and rather embarrassing debts, they were going to have to sort of clear the decks and, and, and get people off the books in order to, in order to re-register him. And I was thinking, well, nobody's, nobody's buying Philippe Coutinho. Nobody's buying, you know, Griezmann or Dembele or, or all of these players that they spent huge amounts of money on. Is somebody going to make an exception for Barcelona? Are La Liga going to sort of bend over and, and do everything they can to make sure Messi's still there next season? And then ultimately, you know, it just dragged on and on. And I was thinking last week, you know, Man City wanted 
Messi last last year. Why why not rather than spend hundred million on Greece? Why, why not just dangle a huge contract in 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 front of Messi? You know that that, that would surely be the ultimate dream for for Guardiola. But but you know fair dues to them. They they, they they stuck to the Greenish deal, and it left. You know, once it became apparent last it was Thursday, wasn't it, that that, that, that Messi would be leaving Barcelona uh, in tears, crocodile tears. I don't. Oh, I think they probably sincere tears. I think he was probably terribly sad to leave. But yeah, it didn't. It didn't. Didn't take him long to uh, fall on his feet and end up in um, in Paris, did it? Uh, we're going to uh, chat about uh, financial fair play w- with Ollie and, and the article that he's written. But let's get a clear definition of what it actually means first of all, and also how it's changed since COVID. So here's the Athletics' Phil Buckingham with an explainer. Financial fair play, or FFP, was introduced by UEFA 10 years ago and its initial aims were noble. The theory, at least, is that a club cannot consistently spend more than they earn. Not only would that limit how much a wealthy benefactor could invest in squad strengthening, it would also prevent clubs from falling into financial trouble should things go wrong. UEFA's break-even rules stipulated that any one club cannot overspend by more than 30 million euros during a three-year window, and if they did, sanctions would follow. PSG and Manchester City have both been charged by UEFA for their spending habits in recent years, but tellingly, neither was hit with any meaningful punishment. But the short-term changes introduced last summer in the age of COVID-19 have certainly aided PSG's remarkable summer. UEFA brought in emergency measures to relax FFP rules, knowing that the vast majority of clubs would struggle to comply owing to losses forecast across the continent. The financial year of 2020 has not fallen under FFP rules and will instead be rolled into 2021. Those two seasons are then to be assessed as a single financial window. Losses over the €30 million threshold will be permitted without punishment, so long as it is clear the deficit came as a result of COVID-19. And that is where PSG and Manchester City have been able to come on strong this summer. With owners willing to absorb huge losses, they can see opportunities in football's financial crisis. So, Ollie, your piece takes us back 10 years now to 2011, and, and Michel Platini announced financial fair play. This was about bringing in a new dawn of financial responsibility. It doesn't really feel that it's gone that way in the 10 years since. No, I, I, I think there are two aspects to it. I think, I think one aspect is that if you look at Europe as a whole, you look at the, the huge amount of debt and the huge amount of losses that were being incurred by, by football clubs across Europe, but you know, primarily in, in, in England and in, in, in Spain because of the amounts they were spending. At that time, a decade ago, I think in 2010-11, I think it was, those across Europe, there was a collective combined 1.7 billion euros loss, which is, you know, that's unsustainable. And, and that has been turned around, or at least it was turned around pre-COVID to the point where European football was making a profit. Now, that was partly the amount of money that was coming into the game from commercial contracts and the huge TV deals. But it was also more regulated spending. I think if you look at various clubs, mid-table clubs in, in, in Premier League, in the Premier League, for example, are generally, you know, they're, they're generally run more sustainably now than, than a decade ago. I think financial fair play has brought a, a very welcome degree of stability. But what it hasn't done is, is stop the enormous wage escalation and... That wage escalation has largely been, you know, even in the case of someone like Barcelona, who a decade ago were Mesquian club and 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 purist and no no sponsors name on the shirt. You know, whether it's them or whether it's 
Bayern Munich or particularly clubs like uh, Manchester City or PSG, a lot of that increased spending has come from you know massive sponsorship deals from the Middle East, or, you know the type of which were meant to be very, very, very closely monitored and closely sort of um, scrutinised under financial fair play. And, and I think we've ended up in a situation where, yes, it is now regulated a lot more, which is why it's La Liga's financial regulations rather than Barcelona's, uh, rather than UEFA's, which have been the issue. But Barcelona, because of financial regulation, have not been able to keep falling even further into debt and, and have not been able to retain the services of Lionel Messi. Yet it, it's there's a bit of a contradiction there when he has ended up in 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 the, in the arms of Paris Saint-Germain who have been built in a way that at least to the naked eye and I think to most observers would seem to have been in breach of the principles of, of financial fair play. So that, that that's where we are really and, and it's it's... I think the, the Messi deal probably just underlines how Fanage Fair Play didn't stop Barcelona running up ridiculous debts. And it's also not stopped PSG just pumping in more and more and more money from Qatar or Manchester City pumping more and more money from Abu Dhabi to, to become the superpowers that, that, that they've become. I, th- I think they're the, two, they're the two contrasts when it comes to financial mm. fair play. With, with Manchester City, you, you can actually look at the players that they've sold and go, do you know what? They do, they do bring in a lot of revenues through the players that they have, they have sold, whether that be through... And Chelsea have as well, haven't they? Through, through the players that they've developed through their youth academy and then sold on. Paris Saint-Germain, it's harder to see where the money comes from from player sales because there aren't there are many that I can think of off the top of my head where they've sold several players on to other clubs for a, for a profit or for a sizable chunk. And I think when you, you highlight Barcelona and their debt working under financial fair play rules... And Paris Saint-Germain being able to bring in Donnarumma, Sergio Ramos, Gino Wijnaldum on free transfers, along with Messi on free transfers, and Hakimi, who they signed for £60 million, plus already having Neymar and Mbappe on the books, then the contrast of Barcelona and Paris Saint-Germain, you go, well, neither of those appear to be operating under a financial fair play model No, to the outsider. No, no, I, I, I agree, and and it's I mean, PSG will. I mean, PS, PSG were were initially sort of charged and investigated, and for for FFP breaches, and and were somehow able to persuade UEFA and and the Court of Arbitration for Sport that that their sponsorship deals did represent fair value, and they weren't sort of inflated sponsorship deals in the way that it, you know, UEFA initially alleged. There's a part about that in, in, in the article I've written. It's very convoluted and I can't remember, recall the numbers off the top of my head, but, but UEFA ended up, you know, UEFA commissioned um, uh, a marketing agency to, to put a true value on, on some of PSG's sponsorship deals, found one particular deal to be sort of grossly inflated for the, for the amount of visibility that that, that deal brought and the profile that that deal brought, uh, you know, for, for a club in a league that's not massively watched in terms of TV audiences worldwide, but but then UEFA's, you know, somebody else in in the in the sort of financial body investigating ended up just sort of going with PSG's figures instead, and it felt like that sort of scrutiny that was there and it was meant to be there just fell away really, and and I, I find it really interesting when when um, I mean we're recording this on. Um, on Wednesday morning and Messi's being presented. And I've, I've just seen the quote from 
the PSG president Nasser Al Khalifi, and he, he says, "I thank thank our commercial partners who believe in our project from day one." And Rob Harris of Associated Press, who you know a lot of us will know, said, "Among sponsors of the club, ultimately owned by Qatar." Qatar's Amir, there's a theme. Visit Qatar, Urudu, Qatar National Bank, Qatar Airways, Aspatar, BN, shirt sponsor of court, part owned by Qatar too. To say that our, our commercial partners believed in the project from day one and, and it's this sort of belief in the brand that has um, made all of this possible is... We, Unsiffle. What we like, but it's rather disingenuous, I think, because yeah. the, the, the people, the, the commercial partners are the project. It's a Qatar project. Which is which happens to be at a, a French football club, the same as the Manchester City project, which is fantastically run, fantastically coached, brilliant recruitment department, very clever people, good people, but it's it's an Abu Dhabi project with a, a big Premier League football club as as a front, really, and and that's what we've been left with. That's what FFP was sort of meant to keep in check because it was felt to be unhealthy, and we can. You know, there's a whole other debate about that and whether whether there was anything wrong with those projects and whether whether we should ever try to restrict those projects. But th- those projects have grown and projects like Barcelona, which, um, you know, th- th- they've just made such a terrible job of that, such a pig's ear of it. And, and it's the consequences of a decade of FFP are probably not really what um, anybody outside of Qatar and Abu Dhabi imagined in the process of putting this article together did, did you if, if you move away from that that sort of Manchester City Paris Saint-Germain level did you find that these financial fair play rules have actually restricted well, I was going to say mid-table clubs for fear of, of of annoying supporters of say I don't know Everton have had a lot of investment haven't they through 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 Mashiri and he's put a lot of money in uh, Villa have, have actually started to get quite a bit of investment from their owners and they've and they've spent some some on players, but despite that investment and the money they've spent, is there a fear? Is there a feeling amongst that next level down that they are restricted by FFP in a way that, say, Paris Saint Germain with all of their Qatar sponsors aren't necessarily? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And 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 you know, Manchester City with with their you know their, their Etihad deal, etc. And 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 those deals were able to be Manchester City. Supporters, I think, felt that FFP was was going to kind of or, or was at risk of of sort of clipping their wings and stopping them becoming this superpower. But 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 they have become they have become that. They've got in just in time, really, and and, and they've managed to they've managed to um, uh, find loopholes and, and and find ways of, of of getting that investment passed. I don't think it's possible now for. Aston Villa or or Everton to do that. Everton have got this sort of, should we say, questionable deal with with USM, which is um, Usmanov's company, which was about an option. You know, he paid a huge amount for an option on on naming rights for a stadium that at the time wasn't even in, under construction. That seems like the kind of deal that probably should have been questioned or or, or scrutinised under under financial fair play. It probably hasn't been because they haven't been in in European football. But if they want to put another. Two hundred million pound in in this summer, in order to kind of take that long-awaited next step or or first step, given how poorly they've spent a lot of it, it's too late really because they because the the, the Premier League's sustainability rules don't allow them to put money in. They're they're right at the limit of it. So even with this deal with Usmanov's companies about naming rights for their their stadium, they are currently 
right at their limits. So they so they can't push on in the way that Manchester City did. And I think there's there's definitely a sense of frustration that, and and it's a frustration that was there, you know, 15 years ago before FFP, that it was that it's impossible to compete with what are the established superpower clubs. And the only way that anybody from outside that sort of Champions League super club elite has been able to find a seat at the top table, compete at the top end of the transfer market, has been by getting these this massive injection of uh, of money from um, from the Middle East, and and it's you know, I I would say the situation was wrong beforehand. The FFP could have could have brought some kind of equality and a more level playing field, but they never they were never interested in that. They wanted the big clubs didn't want a, a level playing field. They wanted probably just to be ring fenced and kept you know PSG and Manchester City and the like kept um, kept at bay, which hasn't happened. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oli will stay with us because we're going to look more at La Liga now because the backdrop to the Messi transfer is the ongoing financial problems there. Barcelona, as we've been discussing in huge debt, Real Madrid aren't doing much better. Uh, the league as a whole really falling behind. So La Liga president Javier Tebas has seen fit to sell a 10% stake in the league to sports investment fund CVC Capital for £2.7 billion on a deal lasting 50 years. Now, Barcelona and Real Madrid not particularly pleased with this. There is talk of legal action against La Liga on the way. So let's get more insight into the deal, how it's been received in Spain and what the current state of uh, football finance is in Spain as well. Our guest is Luis Alvarez Garcia. He's an equity portfolio manager for MAPFRA. They are based in Madrid. Uh, and very simply, first of all, Luis, is this a good deal for La Liga? It, it probably is. I mean, it's a, it's a trade-off uh, between uh, potential upside for the coming years in terms of the growth of the commercial and TV rights. And on the other hand, you have the, the urgency, the need for liquidity of certain clubs so, I mean, it's fair to say probably commercial and TV rights will be worth more in the future. But it's also true uh, that with the 10% that the La Liga is selling, first, uh, it will really help few clubs on the, on the liquidity side so that they, they are no longer facing uh, some difficulties in the short term. And second, they can use that money to invest in growing their infrastructure, their commercial side, so that the remaining 90% uh, is, is worth more, is uh, effectively worth more in the future. Is this the way forward for a lot of sports in the sense that we have seen others take offers from investment funds? F1, Formula One obviously did it in the past. 
the rugby union at the moment, uh, the Six Nations have an investment from a, an investment fund. Domestically as well, we, you know, our domestic rugby union league has also got investment funds involved as well. Is this the way that major sports will go? Probably yes. Look, there are uh, there are two things to to mention. That first is. Uh, we all need to decide how we want to finance uh, the sports activity. On top of being an investor and also a fan of sports, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm really a romantic one. Uh, I like uh, the old way that the sports uh, used to be. But, but, but it is true that, in the, I mean, someone has to pay uh, the bills. Someone has to pay the salaries of the players. And we all want to see the best players in, uh, in our city, in our clubs. So 10 years ago, 15 years ago, at least in Spain, uh, we had a model where where uh, football was paid by everyone. So in the sense that uh, uh, money was coming from uh, from local authorities, uh, money was coming for uh, public television, money was coming for what we call the caja de ahorros. I mean the, the local saving banks. So so that was a model. I mean if we want to uh, if we want football to be paid by everyone, that's okay. We are going more into a model that I think that makes more sense, which is let's make all these attractive. Uh, for investors, they're going to somehow put their money into into sports and obviously get a, a return that is uh, that is fair enough. And and uh, we have seen several steps uh, on that front, like welfare for financial fair play, and on top of that, the local uh, fair play rules, uh, financial control rules uh, by the local competitions. And and on that front, La Liga is especially doing a very good uh, job. This deal would last fifty years, <laughs> like five zero, fifty years. Is <laughs> Does that sound does that sound right to you? I mean, that sounds to me like a ridiculously long time. But if you are going to invest in something as an investment fund, are you putting deals of that length on the table? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I, I'm an investor into equities, uh, so meaning that I invest in the stocks of, of companies, and uh, I like to define myself as a value investor, long term value investor. And and you know Warren Buffett, which is uh, the most famous uh, value investor in the world. Uh, he used to say um, that his holding period was forever. So he wouldn't buy in a stock that uh, he wouldn't hold if the market was closed for, for many, many years. Actually, I mean, the, the, the 50 years uh, figure is more a technicality, meaning that what CBC is doing is, is actually buying an, an stake in a new company that would have the commercial and TV rights of, of La Liga. And this is, and this is equity. And, and I mean, and, uh, as an investor, and, and I, li- I like what Warren Buffett said, I mean, your holding period, has to be forever. I mean, you have to buy business where you could be where you could be forever. Another thing is how the money is flowing from this new company that is created between La Liga and CBC, 90% La Liga, 10% CBC, to the football clubs in La Liga, and and the way that they uh, that they decided to do so is with a loan, uh, and and the and the maturity of the loan is these 50 years. Uh, why is that? Because you need this loan to, I mean, from an accounting point of view, to be treated as, as equity. Uh, and, and not as debt uh, because of the UEFA financial fair play rules. So clubs that, that go into uh, European competitions that are organized by UEFA, uh, they have certain limits. Uh, so it's, it's more an accounting, accounting issue uh, than actually, yeah. I mean, the thing is that um, uh, CBC is buying a stake in the competition and this stake is like equity, so equity is forever as long as the company lives. Luis, I, I always find that if, if I hear of private equity firms or hedge funds investing, whether it's in clubs or or in sport, I immediately shudder. I, I, find, it, I find it unnerving. I, I feel like it's, um, you know, it's a sellout. It's selling part of the competition it's saying part of the club to a company who, whose interests are only 
they're only commercial. I don't think anything you've said has massively reassured me in terms of that. I, I know that I know that when people were talking about, for example, with the, with the the rugby union competitions, it was all going to be about maximising that asset. It was going to be about exploiting it. It, it. it was going to be run more and more and more as a business. That seems to be the case, doesn't it? And I, and I, and I, I would, looking from the outside as somebody who's admired the sort of Spanish model, the Spanish tradition of fan-owned clubs, that is member-owned clubs, I would think, well, yes, this is, this is a great sort of short-term cash boost, but isn't this coming at a, a huge cost in terms of integrity, community and tradition? Well, well you, you mentioned uh, fan-owned clubs in Spain, and, and these are not especially good examples of, uh, I mean, so, so, so you, you, you can have good management and, and bad management with the two, let's say, uh, models, investors and, and, and fan-owned clubs. Uh, remember that when a club is owned by, by, by fans, most of the time, like the time horizon of the, of the board is just the next four years and they do whatever they, they need to, to uh, be re-elected in, in, in the next four years. But, but to your point, and, and I very much agree with you, and I said that at the beginning, right? I love sports. I, I love the tradition of, of sports. But uh, whether we like it or not, sports are a, uh, an economic activity, uh, meaning that players get their salary, management get their salary. So we need to decide how we are going to pay for these salaries. And sometimes we get to, a, let, let's say, a, a, a trade-off that is unreal. So um, it's, it's not that uh, fans should be just worried about financial profitability and fans should only be worried about the sporting side. So from my point of view, when it comes to good management, uh, the sporting side and the financial side have to go together because they, they reinforce each other. And actually, we have some very good examples of this working well in, 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 in many clubs. Uh, you know, if we were talking about investing in, in Disney or, or in Netflix, we wouldn't be saying that investors are only worried about the financial return and, and not worried about whether Disney or Netflix are doing good TV series or, or good films. Because this is, a, I mean, this, this is the product. They need to take care of the fans. So investors in football is actually the same. I mean, they, they need to take care of the, of the fans. They need to take care of the product. They need to do things well. They need to care about the tradition because it's, it's, it's not that you only can care about the financial part. The financial part comes together with the sporting part and actually both help each other. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm very much with Ollie in that sort of, you know, romantic notion of, of what sport should be uh, and what sport is. But then the flip side of that, uh, Luis, is, is you look at the way some of these clubs have been run and maybe they did need a cold, hard business outlook on certain things to, to say to Lionel Messi's father, well, hang on a minute, you, you are... <laughs> this is ridiculous. We cannot afford these demands. Maybe with a bit of cold, hard business sense, they wouldn't have got themselves into the mess that they have got themselves into, mm-hmm. would be the other way of looking at it. Uh, I think you are right. And this is, and this is what uh, financial fair play and financial controls are about. Uh, Look, just to give you an insight, in the year 2011, where the UEFA financial fair play was implemented, the European football industry, let's say as a, as a whole, as a group, uh, was losing about 1.7 billion euros, okay? And then that year, the financial fair play rules were implemented, and then losses started to be cut little by little. And then we get to a, a situation in year 2017, 2018, where from that 1.7 loss in 2011, 
in, in 2017, 2018, we got to a combined net gain of the European football clubs of, of around 100 million euros. Does it mean that this is, this is magic and everything becomes uh, good? No, but this is a good way of uh, controlling how the, as you said, how the clubs managing their finances and probably they are putting the clubs in a better negotiating position uh, with the players. Uh, look, there is a trend of US investors looking into European sports. And this is because uh, they think that the story that we have seen in US sports uh, about the, the, the success of US sport franchises from a financial point of view, it can happen in Europe in the coming years. Why? Because this is a story about operating leverage, meaning that the moment you are able to grow the revenues, and by the way, 15 years ago, uh, the level of revenues of US sport franchises was very similar to the level of revenues that we have right now in European football clubs. So the moment that US sports franchises started to grow their revenues, all that went directly into operating margin. Why? Because a large portion of the cost which are player salaries, are fixed in the US. You have salary caps there, okay? So the moment that revenues uh, grew in, in the US, then it's translated into higher operating margins and higher valuation for the US sport franchises. Uh, now many US investors are looking into Europe and saying, hey, we are starting to see reasons to think that this is going to happen in Europe in the coming years. Why? Because European competitions are more and more worried about financial controls. And you have the example of UEFA, but you have the example of La Liga. And in La Liga, you have the most similar thing you can find in European sports to the salary cap in the US. It's a bit different because in the US, salary cap is the same for every franchise. And in La Liga, it's kind of a black box uh, where you, I mean, clubs. So La Liga, a projection about their budget, uh, their, their P&L, their, their balance sheet. And then it gets into kind of a black box because we don't know the formula and you get to a, to a salary limit. This is what investors need for operating leverage to, to, to take place. But, that, but then the problem for that with, with investors like CVC is that they go, okay, there's a, there is a salary cap of sorts within La Liga. Brilliant. That means increased revenues come onto the operating side of things rather than going to the players. But, but, but it means all the, all the big names disappear and go to a different league, which is what we've seen in the last 72 hours. And therefore, this has always been the big argument, hasn't it, with European football. Unless everybody comes in together to to make, you know, the, the salary cap or sal salary regulations, the leagues that don't operate with that structure just go, thanks very much. We'll, we'll take Messi. We'll take Ronaldo. We'll take, you know... That's a Joe Felix. That, 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 that's the point, and this is uh, this is the reason why it has to be done at the European level. Uh, because if not, in the short term, we are going to to see these kind of of movements. Uh, look, uh, I'm an investor in certain um, European football clubs, so I manage the the Mafre and Behavioral Fund. This is a fund that has 70 million euros assets under management. Uh, 25 percent of the fund is invested into seven sport related companies. 10% is invested into European football clubs, uh, which are uh, Borussia Dortmund. This is 6% of the fund. And then Ajax in the Netherlands, 2%. And Olympique Lyon, uh, in, Olympique Lyon in, in France, 2%. If you talk to, to the management of, of these clubs, they, I mean, they are very much worried about the financial position. Actually, Ajax in the Netherlands, they started the pandemic with uh, a net cash position. And they are going out of the pandemic close to a net cash position as well. So they care a lot about financial control. 
Borussia Dortmund, they, they, they usually run the club with a zero net debt uh, limit. Uh, and, and this year after the pandemic, they were very worried because they got to a one-time net debt EBITDA. Um, so uh, this, is, this, this is a level that wouldn't be worrying for uh, the, many of the other companies that, that operate in, in Europe and many of the other companies that I have in the portfolio, that we have in the portfolio. But they, they really care about the financial control. But obviously, it's fair for them to say, look, if we, if we control our debt, if we cannot spend that limit, that that amount into players, why do we have to compete with other people that maybe can uh, can have higher debt or can, or can have capital injections from from uh, other sources? And I think it's fair enough to say uh, that they all need to play with the same rules. I, I think it's interesting, Luis, that you, you mentioned Borussia Dortmund because obviously they are, uh, you know, a much admired club. That you know they seem to have a, a sort of traditional ownership model, and, and I expect a lot of people who don't follow it particularly closely would be surprised that they have, you know, that, that, that a private equity firm has a has a stake in the club. You know, I, I, but I, I just wondered whether when you look at the way different clubs are run and, and I mean, isn't Dortmund the perfect example of, of, how a, of how a club should be run? I mean, it is sustainable being run as an investment for, for overseas investors. It's not being run as a billboard for a, for a state in another country. It's not run as a plaything for a, for a billionaire. Would you imagine a, a, a club like Borussia Dortmund would want sell out and lose, lose control of its sort of direction destiny in a way that sometimes happens when clubs sell out to big businesses and, and accept sort of major foreign investments? Look, when we look for businesses and, and we try to find this, the same criteria for all the companies that we include in the portfolio, uh, we look for uh, one, good businesses. I mean, businesses that can grow and, and create value for their shareholders in the coming years. Second, uh, solid balance sheets, meaning that there is little debt or, or even net cash. Uh, and third, um, good people in the management team. I mean, people that can create value for, for shareholders and also that are uh, the right people from, in, from an ethical point of view. These are three things that make, uh, at least for us, companies very interesting for investors. And uh, Borussia Dortmund feels the, the, like the three conditions, uh, meets the, the, the three conditions. And, and on top of that, and, 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 and this comes back to the, to the topic that we uh, that we discussed a few minutes ago, they are doing well on the sporting side uh, and they are treating the farm base very well. Actually, in Germany, you have this 50 plus one rule, meaning that uh, foreign investors and, uh, are not allowed to have a majority stake in the, in the clubs, which maybe this helps. But, but that comes to, to, to my previous point. I mean, you can have a club that is well run from, a, from an economic and financial point of view uh, that is really interesting for investors, as, as Dortmund is in my, in my view. And... and, and even with that, or, or let's say, more, I mean, to be most accurate, uh, part of that is that they are doing really well on the sporting side. They, they, they are themselves kind of value investors in the sense that they sign uh, Sancho or they sign Haaland very cheap, and then they are able to, 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 to sell uh, at very high prices. No? And, and they treat the local fan, fan base really well. So, so it's possible to do everything. And actually, it's not only that it's possible, it's that it's needed. I mean, you, you need to do things very well where you're, with, with your fan base, with your sporting side, in order to be, to be successful on the economic side and to be attractive for, for investors. So I fully agree with you. But, but if you, turn, if you look, turn back the clock a decade and, and Dortmund were, you know, they, they won the, the Bundesliga in 2011, 2012, 
They got to the Champions League final in 2013. And ever since then, they have been sort of forced into a lesser position because all of these clubs have, you know, they, they, they could have been the ultimate beneficiaries of financial fair play if financial fair play had, had worked as it is intended to do. But what has really happened is that it's become this arms race at the very top, both the traditional super club, you know, super clubs, Barcelona, Real Madrid, etc., have spent enormous amounts. And the, the sort of new rich clubs, you know, Manchester City, PSG, etc., have, have, have spent hugely. And that's been, you know, they, they've done that despite financial fair play. And it feels like Dortmund have ended up being victims of financial fair play. And I, I wonder whether, I mean, I know, I know people in Dortmund are, are, you know, remain supportive of the principles, but are they not slightly kind of tearing their hair out that all of their, you know, the, the, they've been a club that's been so well run over the last decade and, and yet it's, it, it now feels impossible to do what they did under Jurgen Klopp in the, um, at the start of the last decade? So if you look at Dortmund uh, 10 to 15 years ago, when, when the new management team came into the, into the club, they were, they were close to, to being bankrupt. So they were in a very difficult financial position. Uh, they have been doing things very well and, and being able to compete at a local level in a very difficult league, that is uh, the German league. They have been almost for all the time number two or number three in, in Germany, being able to qualify for the Champions League uh, on, a, on a regular basis. And, and they are able to even to, to, to keep some very important players. I mean, they, they didn't sell uh, Sancho uh, last year and, and probably they had some very good offers. Uh, they are probably not selling Haaland this year. So they are able to retain some, some very good players. Obviously, when you face teams that are uh, getting capital injections from, from very rich people in, in, uh, in some countries that they want to, to invest into, into European football, that's, I mean, that's difficult for, that, for them to, to, to compete. But probably they are closer to a sustainable way of, of, of uh, being competitive than other clubs that are running into huge amounts of debt. Uh, okay, this is something that probably we are not seeing in the short term, but probably we will see in the long term. Uh, this is this is this is one thing, and the other thing, as you mentioned, is that probably uh, rules have to be the same for everyone. Rules have to be implemented. So if we decide that it's possible for for a rich uh, man or woman to come and inject a lot of capital in a club and then sign all the starts, and this is the agreement that we get. Uh, fine. If we if we want to go, and and this is my view, I'm more romantic. I I, I like. I, I like uh, competitions like to be really competitive uh, between uh, between all, all the teams that take place. Uh, maybe you have to go to a different model where good financial management and low debt can lead you to 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 have better players and to do things uh, well. And this is this is the kind of the model that that Dortmund is taking. But again, let's not lo- uh, lose the perspective. And and Dortmund is uh, doing really great at the, at the local level and, and qualifying for the Champions League on a very regular basis. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. A two-part question, really, to to finish. This deal hasn't been ratified as yet, has it? Because Barcelona and Real Madrid plan to take legal action. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the the general assembly of La Liga is taking place um, this uh, Thursday uh, on the on the twelfth of uh, August, and we uh, so the, for the for the club for the for the deal to be approved, two thirds uh, are needed. So two thirds of the club need to uh, approve the deal. And, and for example, in Italy, uh, that wasn't the case. So uh, there were uh, nine clubs that opposed to, to a very similar deal uh, and the deal didn't, didn't go through. Okay. And then the, the, the final part with, with Barcelona and Real Madrid is, and, and Oli's already mentioned some of the, the new money. You know, you look at last season's Champions League semifinals. I know Real Madrid were in there, but it was also Chelsea and Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City. Uh, can Real Madrid and Barcelona keep up? With that, with those three clubs in particular, when you consider that Manchester City have bought Jack Grealish for a hundred million pounds, Romelu Lukaku will go will go to Chelsea for nearly a hundred million pounds, and Paris Saint Germain have taken Lionel Messi from Barcelona. Uh, Real Madrid and Barcelona, it would appear, are, are miles behind the new moneyed clubs at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, so look, uh, one of the key points of the UEFA financial fair play rules is that in order to spend more, uh, you need to show uh, you need to show higher revenues. I think that Real Madrid and Barcelona can probably grow their revenues in the in the coming in the coming years. Probably they uh, they are starting now from a more difficult position. Uh, but this is the I mean this is the fight that they have the that they have with uh, with UEFA um, whether. The money that is coming to, to some of these clubs that you mentioned is coming from, from revenues or are just pure uh, capital injections. So this is something that they, that they need to discuss uh, between the clubs, uh, with UEFA. This, this is part of the controversy uh, behind the Superliga issue, the Super League issue. This is, this is something that is going on. And obviously, if uh, clubs are, are able to grow just through capital injections, then probably it will be very difficult uh, for Barcelona and, and Real Madrid because they are, uh, let's say, fan-owned uh, clubs. If, if the measure uh, for everyone is, is revenues, uh, probably these two historic clubs and big clubs in, in Europe, they, they would be ready to grow their revenues and, and be at a similar level than, than, uh, than other clubs. And uh, is it good for Lyon that, that Messi is in France then? As, uh, as you mentioned, being an investor... <laughs> In Leon is I, I can't work out whether that's good or bad. <laughs> uh, I would probably say it's, it's good. Uh, one of the difficulties that we have seen in France in the last year was about uh, TV rights and, and, and commercial and the commercial deal. And uh, I mean, especially TV. Well, you, don't, you don't have to worry about you don't have to worry about that for the next three years, do yeah. you? That, that, all of that will rock it. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, so yeah, I would say it's probably good news for uh, Lyon uh, as long as I mean. Part of the part of the revenue of many of the clubs in the different leagues in Europe uh, is is very much linked to the to the power of the competition. So the most uh, the the more powerful the competition is, 
the better for the clubs in terms of uh, TV deals, uh, commercial rights, and and all that. So I would say, yeah, it's probably uh, good news for Lyon. Lyon has been, I mean, France in general has been facing some some difficulties in the in the last uh, in the last few months. But again, I'm I'm quite confident on the investment thesis on on Lyon. Uh, we haven't talked about the the infrastructure, but I think this would be a crucial point. This has been a crucial point in the U.S. sports uh, in in the last decade. And this will probably be uh, a very interesting point in, in, in Europe going forward. Just to give you a number, um, Lyon has already invested into a new stadium. They did so in 2016. Uh, and before the pandemic, they were making about 50 million euro uh, revenues uh, on the stadium. And the capital invested in the stadium was about 400 million euros. So that's about a 12% gross uh, return, uh, gross yield on, on, on the stadium. Considering, considering the, current, the current interest rate environment, uh, considering where we are, uh, it's very difficult to find any other infrastructure asset uh, in, in the world with this kind of, of, of gross yield. So I'm pretty confident that, that, that when people start to come back to the stadium and they are able to, uh, again, do uh, workshop for companies, concerts, uh, rugby games in the stadium, this will be a very important uh, revenue stream. Very good to have you on. Thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. Really good to talk to you. Thank you, Lewis. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, right, that's it from us. Thanks very much for listening. If you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, then head to theathletic.com slash football pod and you'll get a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. So theathletic.com slash football pod and you get 33% off the price of an annual subscription. Now, tomorrow's pod, Dan is back, and that will be our first preview of the Premier League weekend. We'll be doing that every single week, the first one with Dan tomorrow. See you soon. The Athletic. I'm Kevin Day, and twice a week, Liverpool University accountancy boffin and the self-confessed most boring man in Britain, Kieran Maguire, and I discuss the money behind the beautiful game on the Price of Football podcast. We cover all levels of the game and clubs and leagues all over the world, so you can know the difference between your amortisation and depreciation and your FFP and your EPPP, whichever team you follow. I'm just counting the P's. Yes, it's not just about accountancy though, thank God. You'll also regularly hear about sordid nights out in Russia and Blackpool and get to enjoy frequent contributions from Kieran's dog Finley, as well as our bro-flake bromance. Every Thursday, we look at the latest football finance stories and every Monday, we answer your questions about anything related to the money side of the game all you have to do is email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. Just search for The Price of Football in your podcast app and give us a follow now to get every new episode as soon as it comes out.